Well, good morning. It is such a joy to be with you this morning in the house of the Lord. To sing these rich blessings that we have in the gospel, the hope that we have, a sure foundation and a sure future. We're grateful for such a Savior. Well, before we get into our time in the Word this morning, I want to just make one additional announcement, and that is that we're going to have a baptism class on February 28th at 11 a.m. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, but you have not taken that step of obeying Him by going through the waters of baptism, please see me, contact the church office during the week, we'll get the materials printed, and we'll look forward to meeting with you on the 28th of February and prepare a baptism to come a few weeks after that. So it's something for us to look forward to. I encourage you to make sure that your cell phones are turned off or turned to silent. Even if you think you've already done it, please do it. As we are live streaming the service, we want to avoid whatever um, interruptions that we can have. And a special greeting to those of you joining us online this morning. Good to have you with us. Thank you for taking the time to worship with us as we open the Word of God together and study it together. In an article that appeared a number of years ago, uh, we have the wrong PowerPoint. In an article that appeared in U.S. News and World Report from February of 1994, it talks about the power of words, especially words that are destructive and intended to harm. The article describes the work of psychologists Cliff Notarius and Howard Marksman, who are authors of a book entitled, We Can Work It Out. And their book is a result of research that has been done over years studying marriages, especially studying reasons why marriages are destroyed. What they did in their research was they retraced the steps of a number of different couples over the course of many years, sometimes even a decade or more. And what they discovered was a bit unsettling. None of the factors one would guess might predict a couple's durability actually does. Not how much in love a newlywed couple is or say they are, not how much, how much affection they exchange, not how much they fight or what they fight about. In fact, couples who endure and those that do not look remarkably similar in the early days. Yet as they studied the trends of these different marriages and followed them over their first decade of marriage and often a little beyond, they found a very subtle but telling difference at the beginning of their relationships. Among couples that would ultimately stay together, five out of every 100 comments made about each other were put down. Among couples who would later split, 10 out of every 100 comments were insults. And that gap magnified over the following decade or decades until the couples heading downhill were flinging five times as many cruel and invalidating comments at each other as happy couples were. And one of the authors said, hostile put-downs act as cancerous cells that if unchecked, erode the relationship over time. In the end, relentless, unremitting negativity takes control of the couple, and they can't get through a week without major blow-ups. Words are important. Words 
have an impact. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at the impact of words in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ and those who oppose him. Words reveal, we will see, what is in the heart. Words become a perfect reflection of what is going on inside. And there's a danger then in the misuse of words, especially when judging the works of God. We will find out in part two next week that every word that we utter will be weighed before the judgment seat of God. And using words then wrongly, whether it's about Jesus, about his works, or about his servants, will lead to trouble. So as we prepare to look at these next two sections in Matthew, we do well to ask the Lord to guide us, not only as we study these two passages, but as we analyze our own use of words with each other and concerning the things of God. Now with that heavy word weighing on our hearts as we begin, I invite you to stand as we read God's word that we will consider today out of Matthew 12. And the inspired and holy word of God says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house? And plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Let us pray. Father, as you have given us this word for our edification and instruction, would you prepare our hearts and open our minds and ears to hear it, to receive it, to understand it, to believe it, to apply it. Our desire is to meet with you, the living God, through your word this morning. Come and teach us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As we get to our first major point this morning, hopefully you're following along in your sermon outline or on the church app. I'm currently encouraging you all throughout this year to get the app put on your phone so you can stay up to date with what's going on with the church. But our first major point this morning is the amazing healing, the amazing healing. And our text begins, then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. So we can imagine the scenario. We have a man here who is both blind and mute. He can't see. He can't speak. Undoubtedly, he cannot hear. Moreover, he's oppressed by a demon. 
And what we have here then is in living color what Jesus would warn about in another gospel, in Gospel of John chapter 10 and verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. The thief is the devil, the evil one who wants to destroy those created in God's image and wants to resist all that God is doing. So we have this poor man who is afflicted both spiritually and physically. Now, we do not always know if there is a spiritual connection to any particular illness. It's possible, but here it is clear. There is a connection between his spiritual condition and his physical condition. But in any case, whatever the cause may be, whatever the illness, whatever the sickness, Jesus is able. He's capable. He can deal with it if it is his will to do so for the glory of his Father. And we've already seen many times in the Gospel of Matthew, and indeed we see in the other Gospels, that Jesus deals with a large variety of conditions and illnesses and maladies. But I could find this as the only time that we have a person who is both blind and mute. This is significant because in the context of the story, we have Pharisees who clearly cannot see and who speak poorly. This is the third of five specific cases of exorcism in the gospel according to Matthew. So we have a man here who is sick and someone who needs to bring him to Jesus. We're not told who this was, but if he cannot speak, if he cannot hear, if he cannot see, obviously he's going to need someone to bring him to Jesus. But we don't have those details. Matthew just wants us to get to the point. He moves us on to the next step in the story and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. We're not sure of the exact location in the ministry of Jesus and the timeline where this happened, but Matthew organizes it so that we have this uh, healing mentioned right after he has pointed out that Jesus is the spirit-anointed Messiah as promised by the prophet Isaiah. We don't have any mention of how he did it, what the healing process was, just a simple, he healed him so that the man spoke and saw and so the wonder of this miracle is that the man can now speak and he can now see. And think of how wonderful that would be, suddenly introduced into life, being able to see and speak and hear and engage with people and the praises that would flow off his lips. They're not recorded here, but I have a feeling sometime around the throne of grace we're going to hear the story of the praises that flowed forth from his mouth as he was healed and delivered on that day. He could speak. He could not speak, but now he can. And he gives glory to Jesus. That will be contrasted with the Pharisees who could speak, but should have learned better that it was not good to always do so. I think it's a reminder for us this morning. We need to be careful when we speak. We need to be careful how we speak, to whom we speak, what we speak about. You know, in our Constitution, we even say you have the right to remain silent might be good for us to avail ourselves of that right to time to time, especially on things that might get us into trouble. And all the people were amazed as they saw this miracle, and they said, can this be the son of David? Now, it's interesting, the ESV translates it as the people. The Greek word okoloi actually is better translated as the crowds. There's a whole bunch of people here, and they're seeing this miracle, and they're amazed at what they saw. And we know that from earlier passages in Matthew, you'll recall that we talked about what were the signs of the Messiah, according to the prophets. And the first one that came up was the healing of the blind, giving sight to the blind. 
And so that is the single most performed miracle by Jesus. He, of course, performed a lot of miracles, but giving sight to the blind, that particular miracle is recorded more than any other in the scriptures. It's to point clearly to the fact that he is the Messiah. He's making it clear who he is and what he came to be. So the crowds are amazed, and they say, can this be the son of David? Now, in certain Jewish traditions, they say that King Solomon had the authority to exercise demons. So it's possible that for some in the background here, they think that Jesus is performing these miracles, and that's their reference maybe to the son of David. But there's definitely a deeper meaning going on here. He is the one, as the son of David, who will redeem Israel, who will rule over Israel, who will bring hope for Israel and the nations. We saw in chapter 9, after Jesus had performed a miracle, the crowd said, never was anything seen like this in Israel. There's a growing awareness that this man is a miracle worker, that he's doing great things, that his power is going forward. But as we've seen, they didn't always have a true and full understanding of who Jesus is. He has come to heal and restore, and he speaks on sin and righteousness, and he said he's going to deliver his people from their sins. And they're, they're starting to get this picture, and they're wondering, who is he? But we see that Jesus at times says, no, let me be the one that tells my own story in my own way, in my own timing, so they can overcome the misunderstanding and opposition that is going on in his ministry. So we begin with this amazing healing. Just Jesus heals him, he speaks, he sees, which brings us into our next major point, which is the horrendous accusation, the horrendous accusation. Now, a few chapters earlier, after Jesus had performed a miracle, the Jewish leaders said that Jesus casts out demons by the prince of demons, and Jesus didn't respond there. He will in this encounter, but they say it again. But when the Pharisees heard it, now, if that's all the, you had, but when the Pharisees heard it, what would you hope their reaction would be? This man who was blind can see. He couldn't speak. He can speak. He couldn't hear. He can hear. You would expect that there would be this shout of praise. Isn't this wonderful what's happening? But no. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. What a statement. Let that just ring on your ears for a while about who is saying this and to whom they're saying it. You see, the Pharisees in their days, they had healers. There were healers that moved around the countryside with their potions and their chants and their herbs and their incantations. So what we have the Pharisees doing here is they're not denying that something has happened. They're just attributing it to the wrong power, to the wrong source. And they're going to find themselves in very dangerous trouble in short order. They were not accepting that Jesus was operating these things by the power of his being the Messiah. They didn't believe he was the Messiah. So they make this claim that Jesus was operating by the power of Beelzebul. Beelzebul literally means the Lord of the high places. It was the name that they gave to the top demon. They're saying Jesus is in league with the most evil of beings. Somehow he was in partnership with evil. He's tricking the people, they think, and that's why these things are happening. So they'd already challenged him once with this claim in chapter 9, verse 34. 
And it wasn't enough that they had called him a blasphemer in chapter 9, verse 3. It wasn't enough that they called him a friend of tax collectors and sinners, chapter 9, verse 11. It wasn't enough that they said he violated the Sabbath and he deserved death, Matthew 12, verse 14. Now they say he's in league with the devil. And they even cast him aside with a dismissive, this man. Not even giving him respect of being a, a rabbi or some religious leader. They had opposed Jesus from the beginning. And this opposition is continuing. They already have determined that he can't be from God. And yet, spiritual things are happening. So, if it's not from God, then it must be from the dark side. They're starting to walk on very dangerous ground. And how will Jesus respond? Well, he responds with the divine response. Their accusation was that Jesus was using some type of black magic to perform his miracles. In fact, that continued into the Talmud, which is their commentary in the early couple of centuries after Jesus. In the Talmud, they quote Jesus as being a sorcerer. But they're sadly mistaken. They need to repent of such a frightful attitude. And they quickly find out that Jesus knows it all. So the text goes on and says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them. You know, we saw it last week. We've seen it a couple of different times. Jesus knows our thoughts. He knows the intentions of our hearts. And let that thought linger in your minds that he knows the thoughts of your mind, the intentions of your heart, when next week we talk about, and all of that's going to be weighed before the holy throne of God. He knows our motivations. He knows our intentions. He sees what we're doing. He knows what they're doing. He sees through the ruse that they are trying to lay down. And imagine the surprise that must have come to their minds when he actually addresses what's going on in their thoughts. For he said, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, and he will respond to their thoughts and accusations with two challenging answers. Two challenging answers. Now, in Matthew 9, when they launched the same accusation against Jesus, he didn't respond. But here he will. And he's going to begin with a, a logical argument, if you will, a linear argument. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Seems like an obvious truth to us today, but it bears saying again, a kingdom divided against itself will be destroyed. No divided city. No divided house, no divided country can stand. No divided church can stand either. If a kingdom divides itself and fights against itself, it can't stand. It's just something that is logical, but we need to remind ourselves of that. Those that engage themselves in civil war, so to speak, cannot expect to survive. So Jesus makes this straight-out claim. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? So we have this man who's been healed. He was blind. He was mute. And in Jesus, he's been set free from demons and from all physical harm. Therefore, this miracle, Jesus says, can't be from Satan because he only wants to do harm to others. He's not going to do something that's going to divide his own kingdom. They are united in their opposition against the kingdom of God. But notice that Jesus is going a little deeper in teaching us what's going on. He even uses the personal name of the devil, Satan. In the original language, it means the adversary. 
It means the accuser. He is labeled in the scriptures as the opponent of the church, the opponent of God's people, and the accuser of believers. Do you ever have those thoughts, distracting thoughts that go through your mind? You're not good enough. God can't forgive you. You're not whatever you need to measure up to. That's the brethren. That's the accuser of the brethren. Satan accusing you of lies. You stand firm in who you are in Christ. And clothed in his righteousness, we are accepted before the Holy Spirit throne of God. Don't be surprised when these distracting thoughts come. Because the one who opposes God will oppose you because you belong to God. But the power that we have is we are standing firm in Christ. We're clothed in his righteousness. We're declared to be forgiven. We have his Holy Spirit dwelling within us. But Satan is still attacking and he attacks, and he attacks. And there's unity within the kingdom of evil because they're trying to tear down God's kingdom. Let there not be more unity among the forces of evil than we have in the church. Let's stand on unity. Let's stand on common unity, community, the truth, the spirit of God, the power of God's word. We hide ourselves in Christ, who has borne our sins that we just celebrated at this table. He's given us his righteousness Satan is the accuser, the adversary, but secondly, he has a kingdom. He's the Lord of this world, we're told in the book of Ephesians. He has an influence over others. He is not equal to God. He is a created and limited being, but has a kingdom and has power, but it's for a short period of time. He will not work against himself. He will only work against the things of God. He's not going to help the cause of God by healing a man and restoring him, by bringing back his physical health so that he'll praise Jesus. So we could say it this way. He's evil, but he's not stupid. He cannot cast himself out or with those who stand with him. So Jesus, in a linear way, by saying two kingdoms cannot, a king cannot be divided, is saying this healing did not come about by the forces of evil, but by another power. By him. Must not be evil. It must be from the good side. And after a logical answer, he's going to get a little bit more emotional or more direct, appealing to the hearts of the Pharisees. And then he says, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. The Pharisees themselves had professional exorcists that would go around and cast out demons. We even have an example in Acts chapter 19. The Jewish writer or historian Josephus in the first century records the information on the practices of the Jews with their exorcisms. So the Pharisees would know that exorcisms were possible. But Jesus draws attention and says, but your sons are doing this. Your pupils, the ones that you have trained, the ones that you have taught how to do these things, they're doing things, and they know then that it must have been by the power of God. So ask them where this power comes from, and they will be the ones then who will judge you. They will be the ones that will judge you for judging me because they know that this power must come from God. So if they're performing exorcisms, why can't I? Jesus gives two challenging answers to them and the divine response to their horrendous accusation after he has performed a wonderful miracle. And if, Jesus says, I perform miracles, then the kingdom has come. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
Now we see that there are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of Satan and there's the kingdom of God. There are, in fact, evil and godly forces in the world. They do interact with people in the world. Spiritual warfare is real. But Jesus, responding to their horrendous accusation, says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is what Jesus brought in his first coming. He brought in the kingdom of God. Now, it's interesting, Matthew, as he was writing to his original audience, particularly a Jewish audience, would be very careful about using the name of the Lord. So he would often refer to the kingdom of heaven. And yet five times in the Gospel of Matthew, we do have the mention of the kingdom of God. They mean the same thing. They're used interchangeably. And think of the context that's going on here. He's already talked about the kingdom of Satan, and he wants to make it really clear this is coming from the mouth of Jesus, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has invaded and is going to overcome and conquer and deliver those from the kingdom of Satan. There is a war. It's not between two equals. There is one victor. There is one defeated. And we will celebrate being in the victor and in his victory forever and ever. Jesus, when he came the first time, he brought in the kingdom of heaven. It was inaugurated. And so some of the aspects and the blessings of the kingdom we have today, there is a present element of the kingdom of God. We have forgiveness of sins. We have peace with God. We have the indwelling spirit. We have the joy of the spirit. We have the communion of saints. We have the power to preach the gospel all throughout the world. Those are the blessings that come with being citizens in the kingdom of heaven. And yet, that's just a foretaste. That's just the beginning. Because the kingdom will come in its fullness at the second coming of Christ. We live in that in-between period, the now and the not yet, where we get a little bit of a glimpse of it now, but we'll experience it in its fullness in the new heavens and the new earth. And so we live in that in-between tension of what we have and yet the promise of more to come. The kingdom has come and Jesus is stronger. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So here we have Jesus has performed this miracle. The Pharisees don't believe it. And that's a reminder to us today, my friends, that miracles are no guarantee of faith. You might say, well, we need to go out and have these evangelism campaigns, and we need to have these great miracles, and we need to have these emotional displays of power, and we need to have dancing around on the stage, and we need to have high-energy music, and then people will believe. Well, how could they top what Jesus did, who performed all of these miracles and still had people that looked but would not believe? No, miracles point to Jesus. Miracles point to the fulfillment of Christ, but there's no guarantee of faith. Isn't that the warning we saw in chapter 11? All these cities that had seen these wondrous miracles, but did not bow the knee before God. Hearts that are hardened are not softened just because miracles are performed. Pharaoh stood in the presence of Moses and saw miracle after miracle, but hardened his heart. The Pharisees in that same spirit see Jesus performing miracles and remained hardened in their hearts. But Jesus will continue to perform miracles because he's come in the power of the kingdom of God. He has the power to perform miracles. And so he asks, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods 
unless he first binds this strong man, and then indeed he may plunder his house. This is language that reflects what we see in Isaiah chapter 49. And in that passage, Yahweh, the Lord, promises to rescue his people from their oppressors and to severely punish them. Jesus is using the same thing here. He will bind the enemy. He will release those being held captive. And he will throw eventually the enemy into the lake of fire. Our Lord Jesus Christ, my friends, is plundering Satan's house right now, bringing many into the kingdom of heaven. And one day he will utterly and victoriously conquer Satan. So in summary, Jesus is the strong man here, the stronger man who invades. And he overcomes Satan who is the strong man, who is the Lord of the house as it were. Satan is breaking into the house of Satan, binding him by his power, pillaging his house, redeeming sinners that he came to save. And with the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of light is conquering the kingdom of darkness. And Satan is hindered and limited and even bound so he cannot hinder the preaching of the gospel throughout all the nations. And as this ministry progresses, as Jesus preaches, as he teaches, as he performs wondrous works of liberation, he's conquering territory. And so we see the truth of what the Apostle John would write about in his epistle. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And just the previous chapter of that same epistle, the Apostle John writes, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. My friends, do you find yourself in Christ this morning? Are you clothed in his righteousness, trusting him to, to forgive you of your sins, to, preparing a place for you? Then the good news is you are part of the plunder that Jesus has pillaged from the house of Satan and has brought you into his kingdom with a great reward and with great joy. Oh, it was in the past, every one of us, before we were born again, we were not able to see the way to God. We couldn't even cry out to God. We did not have ears to hear. But then the, the light of God pierced into our darkness, conquered evil with his goodness. Our eyes were opened, our ears were set free, and our tongues were loosed to praise the name of God and praise the name of Jesus. You were set free. That's why we sing with such joy, because we were bound up in the house of darkness, and Jesus pillaged the house and set us free, bringing us into his kingdom forever, because Jesus is stronger. Whatever challenge you face this week, whatever it is, Jesus is stronger. Cling to him, go to him, trust in him, lay it at his feet. And watch him be the one who just lovingly brings you along in fellowship with him. And will provide and protect and take care of you. But remember, there is no neutral ground. Jesus goes on and says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. There's an image here not of harvesting but of shepherding. Those that come to Christ. They'll stay with him. Those that will not are dispersed. There's no middle ground. There's really only two people in the world. Those with Jesus and those opposed to him. There's nobody who has one foot in the kingdom of heaven and one foot on the ground. You're either in or you're not. Either Jesus is Messiah and Lord 
or he is not. Either you have repented and believed of your sins and entered the kingdom of heaven, or you're still, Jesus says, under the influence of the kingdom of Satan. And as we come to Jesus, he brings us into his house. Light conquers the darkness. Light has def- life has defeated death. But my friends, you can sit on the fence no longer. You've seen the evidence. You must decide whether Jesus is good or ultimately Jesus is evil. It's the same challenge that he gave to the Pharisees of his day. It's the same challenge he gives to us today. Whose kingdom are you in? And with that, we get to the final point, which is the warning. The warning. Having responded to their preposterous accusation, having declared the truth of the source of his power, Jesus now gives a serious warning. Be careful what you say and do about the Spirit of God. You're on the edge of an eternal mistake. So beware of the haughty sin. The haughty sin will explain that. Therefore, I tell you, the text says, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. So some background information helps us here. In the book of Numbers in chapter 15, verses 30 to 31, the Lord warns against a sin that is so deliberate, so defiant, it's referred to as sinning with the high hand. It's as if there's such hardness of heart and mind, it's like pointing the accusing hand at God and that will not bow before his authority. And in Numbers 15, that such a sin was so difficult that there was actually no atonement for such a recalcitrant heart. The only punishment would be take him outside the camp and stone him. Jesus is warning of a similar sin here, of those who call good evil and evil good. Now notice Jesus says, he's not saying that blasphemy is not a serious sin, it is. But he's saying every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. And usually they're committed out of ignorance or out of limited knowledge. And when a person realizes it, he confesses his sins, he repents, he turns from it, he's forgiven and he finds in God a forgiving God. But you have to recognize your sin for that to happen. You have to ask for forgiveness. So those who repent even of sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. But that, this is a different type of sin that Jesus is talking about here. And so he warns of the terrible consequences. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So the sin here is not blasphemy. Jesus has already said that sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. And isn't that good news for us today? You know the sad truth? If we could look at the screen of everyone's life and project all of our sins up here, everything we've thought, done, planned, we'd find out that we've all blasphemed God at some point. But thankfully, God in his mercy did not strike us down when we did. Oh, he would have been justified because we've all wrongly accused God, slandered God, blamed God, cursed God in our heart at some point. But those who hear the gospel, they repent, they turn from their sin, 
confess them, and they, they can be forgiven. Listen to the testimony of the Apostle Paul. I'm going to quote from his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of the Lord overflowed for me with the grace and love that are in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's story. But if we're honest, it's our story as well if we're in Christ. That's who we were, but God in his mercy. But I don't believe that that's the sin that is warned against here. I don't believe we're talking about here about the sin of unbelief or the sin of accidentally speaking wrongly. The Pharisees knew that it was Jesus who was doing these things, that he was doing these works of power. They knew that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. They saw the results of what he did and said that it was of evil origin. They slandered the holy work of the Holy Spirit. And so their sin was not directed just at Jesus, but more importantly, at the Holy Spirit. Dr. Daniel Doriani in his commentator says this, Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the sober, clear-minded, deliberate rejection of Jesus, calling him an agent of evil, despite full knowledge of this work and in the face of the Spirit's testimony. This is a sin of unusually malicious and willful rejection of the Spirit's work in witnessing to Jesus. Sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, but not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, because you cannot call the Holy Spirit evil and be forgiven. To call what is good and holy evil is to be on the wrong side of the battle for salvation. In that state, you can no longer repent, because you're outside of the possibility of hearing the message of repentance. As commentator David Turner says, in maintaining that goodness is satanic, they place themselves outside of the possibility of salvation. You may stumble about who Jesus is and be forgiven when you see the light and error of your ways. We were all rebels against God. We were all sinners with our mouths, with our lives, with our actions before we were born again by the Spirit of God. But God had mercy on us. But if we call the Holy Spirit evil, we cut ourselves off from any hope of being transformed, of hearing the gospel, of believing. We need to listen well to the warning that prophet Isaiah gave back when he warned the people of Israel. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We need to let the heavy words of Jesus hang here. Don't blaspheme God the Holy Spirit by calling his holy works evil. Now, let's conclude here with some pastoral notes. Christians cannot commit this sin. If you find yourself worried this morning or you have ever worried that you have committed the blasphemy against the Spirit of God, worry no more if you're in Christ. Because, you see, if you had committed this sin, you would not worry about it and you wouldn't care if you did. This is not a warning to the sensitive conscience of the believer. It is a warning to the arrogant and the cold-hearted. Be careful of what you speak. Even today, as we belong to Christ, we know that we still sin, but as we're reminded of sin, we confess them and repent of them and turn from them and have forgiveness in Christ. 
Secondly, if you're this, here this morning or within the sound of my voice and you're not yet in Christ, but you're worried that you may have committed this sin and it's too late for you, worry no more. There's still hope for you to repent and believe because if you had committed this sin, you would be angry and vile and blasphemed against God and you would not ever want to hear and you would keep on in that state. But the fact that you're worried is a good sign. So now, if today you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Call out to him and say, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. All forgiveness is possible if we just confess our sins, admit our need, and say, Jesus, save me. And so while it is a severe warning that was given to the Pharisees of that day, if you're in Christ this morning, you can counsel and encourage someone else who is in Christ who's struggling with doubts. Say, oh no, if you're in Christ, he is a good Savior who forgives all sins. But listen to the warning about the power of words. I've entitled this sermon, Watch Your Words, because Jesus is warning the people of his day, watch your words as you talk about me. Watch your words as you talk about the Spirit of God. And he'll continue in that theme next week when we get to part two, where he will say that what comes from your lips is there because it reveals what's in your heart. And that gives us things then to contemplate during this week. Because we all know that as the holy word of God shines down into our hearts, into our minds, into our consciences, there's still work to be done. And we need to lean in to God, the Holy Spirit, to cleanse us. We place our trust in what Christ has already done for us. And we move forward in our growing in holiness day by day. So yes, there's a heavy thought here. There's a heavy message. We have a good Savior who's taken our sins to come around this table and will remind us, hungry and needy, he met us at our point of need and filled us and fed us and secures us. So as we think about this message, as we get ready for the next one, what are some lessons we might want to bring home and contemplate during the week? Well, first, because Jesus knows our thoughts. We will focus on his word in order to renew our minds and conform our thoughts to his. We constantly need to have our thoughts transformed more and more to be thinking the thoughts of God. And the way we do that is we hide his word in our heart. We meditate on it. We reflect on it. We, we obey it. We share it with one another. We live according to it. That's work. But it's work that's done in joyful service and obedience to our Lord. Secondly, because spiritual warfare is real, we depend on the power of Christ to protect and defend us in the battle. We do not need to walk in fear because we're in Christ. But we do walk with a sober reality that evil is real and we need to resist it at every turn. And we need to let God clear out the junk in our hearts and minds on an ongoing basis. And we speak words of truth. Thirdly, because Jesus has defeated the strong man, and has set us free. We will live joyfully in the salvation he has given us. Remember the moment when you met Christ? And the joy and the lightness and the freshness that you felt? That's why he came to pillage the strong man's house. And he wants you to walk in that joy and that lightness and that freshness in a continual manner. 
So let the gospel be applied more and more to your life. And lastly, because there is no neutrality concerning Jesus, we will gladly and boldly align with him and live for him. My friends, the days are dark around us. But our Savior is still pillaging the house. And it could be that he wants to use us to be those spokespeople that will continue to proclaim him so that others will hear. And they too will be part of the great bounty that Christ is liberating from the house. And we can joy, have joy with them and enjoy being with them both now and forever. Let us pray. Now, Lord, as we contemplate these words, we are left undone because we know left to ourselves, we would undo it all. So thank you for the firm foundation we have in Christ. Christ, our sure and steady anchor. And so, Lord, as we lead us to contemplate these words, would you burn within our hearts a holy fear of who you are? a reverence that causes us to walk in a sense of awe of who you are daily, that we can be in your presence, that we can walk with you, we who know of what we were, but now in Christ are grateful for what we are and what we are becoming. I pray this week, Father, that the fragrance and the aroma of Christ who has set us free from the bondage of evil, will overflow in our lives, that others might sense that fragrance and say, I need to have this for myself. What is it that you have? And that we have the words to share with them who Christ is and what a great, great deliverer he is. Oh, Father, use us this week to walk in a holy fear and reverence and obedience and yet with joy before you day by day. So we commit ourselves to you afresh. In Jesus' name. Amen.